Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, where we debate, discuss, and dive into law-related issues important to all of us. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Messina. This week on Miranda Warnings, we're very pleased to have Louisa Kay, the daughter of former chief judge of the state of New York, Judith Kay. Welcome, Louisa. Thank you, David. Thank you so much for talking with me. Louisa, it's really great to have you. Uh, you recently uh, released the memoirs of Judith Kay, in her own words, Reflections on the Life and Law. And it's a wonderful book, and you are one of uh, four co-editors. Louisa, tell us uh, how that book came to be. Well, um, I think Probably soon after my mother was diagnosed with lung cancer, um, she started sort of jotting down her reflections and recollections of her life. And, um, and you know, eventually it turned into a memoir. Um, and she does talk in the beginning of the book about um, a book that I actually gave her called Alone on a Wide, Wide Sea, said in that book, which is that... Uh, the time that you can start writing about life is when you know it's ending. And so I guess her diagnosis is what triggered her to start reflecting on her life. And she just kept going. And it was, it really was her last wish to have it published. What was the name of that book that you gave to, uh, to your mother? It's called alone on alone, alone on a wide, wide sea, and it's by Michael Morpurgo, who's a British author, a very beloved um, children's author in England, and he's written a lot of books. In fact, he wrote War Horse also, which was then turned into a movie. And so she mentions that at the beginning, uh, and apparently it was an inspiration for her to start uh, putting down uh, her memoirs and... Uh, she, you know, she indicates that they really should be written when you're close to the end because you know how things turn out, uh, which I thought was just a very uh, interesting perspective. Yeah. I mean, I I still, I don't really think that she ever believed that it, that it was going to be her demise. And um, she just really continued to live life the way she always had. You know, she was always such a hard worker and always devoting herself to causes that and to people who she wanted to help. And so I don't think she ever fully came to terms with the fact that um, she was going to die. But I think it was just, you know, it was just a trigger. Right. And and perhaps that's why, uh, as indicated at the beginning, uh, her memoirs were uh, not fully completed, um, because I'm guessing she probably... They were not completed, um, yeah. Because she, she, she had much more to do, I'm sure. Yes. In fact, I mean... This is this is very private, but I I don't mind if you want to air this. That the the night before she died, she actually had been in the hospital for a little procedure, and the doctor had sat down with her in the hospital and said, "You need to arrange for hospice care. That that's the next step because there's nothing more we can do for you medically." 
And so the entire day before she came home, I spent the day in the hospital with her, with her directing me to, you know, which hospice organization to call and what kind of uh, arrangements she wanted to be made. And then when she got home that night, the woman was there from the visiting nurse service to explain what what they were going to do and have my mother sign papers and things like that. And my mother looked straight into her face and to all of us assembled around the table and said, I'm not having hospice. I'm going to the office tomorrow. Hmm. So literally, <laughs> you know, the night before she died, she was planning to get up and go to the office in the morning. Right. And, you know, and it's clear from from knowing Judge Kay and from the the writings in this book that she uh, she loved her work. Uh, she loved the law. She, uh, she loved being a judge. She loved being a lawyer. And that came through. And, you know, so she spent much of her life doing what she loved. Yes. And so she accomplished so much. And your book you know, handles it in three parts. Uh, it's interesting. You start kind of in the middle uh, with her time uh, on the bench, uh, and uh, you know, which is she's a woman of many firsts. She was the first uh, woman on the Court of Appeals, first woman chief judge of the Court of Appeals. So maybe let's let's talk a little bit about uh, 1983 when uh, then Governor Mario Cuomo appointed her on the uh, to the Court of Appeals. She was a private practitioner. She didn't she wasn't uh, a judge before. Um, tell us a little bit about what was going on at that time and how she got appointed to the Court of Appeals in 1983. Okay, so I the first I ever heard of it was when my father called me and told me that I needed to be at the World Trade Center and go to the governor's office at whatever time it was um, because because he was appointing my mother to the court. Um, my, my parents were incredibly private. They were like the kind of people, you know, if they ever had a disagreement, they would go in their room and close the door. We never heard them exchange harsh words or anything. And, and I think they were holding this close to the vest until it actually happened. So that was the first I ever heard of it. And then um, I guess afterwards, in the years ensuing, um, I, I heard more about the process and, you know, I, I think she talks about it in the book. He was, he was, um, looking to appoint a woman and there were, um, several other women in contention. And I think the women's bar association was supporting one candidate and not her. And so it was a, it was a little bit, uh, contentious, but, uh, at the end of the day, he picked her, and it was a good, very good choice. Right. So you were, this was 1983, you were what, around mm -hmm. 18 at that time? I was. I had just graduated. It was during the summer, so I had just graduated from high school, and I was working, I think I was working for the summer at Merrill Lynch, and then I was going to be heading off to college in September. So were you able to join your, your family at the World Trade Center for yes. the announcement? Yes. So what was that like? It was really, really exciting. I mean, I think especially because I didn't know anything about it ahead of time. It was like this great surprise. And then she, uh, she's on the bench, so she's in Albany for you know a couple weeks out of every five weeks, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, what kind of impact did that have on on the family? Um, well, it didn't really have much of an impact on me because I I went off to college, um, but it did. It most um, affected my my youngest brother Gordy because he was still, I guess, like a sophomore in high school or maybe even a freshman. Um, and so because my mother was going to be away so much and because my father was also an incredible workaholic, um, they um, decided to send Gordy to boarding school. And um, so he went to Choate um, starting, I think, probably the September after she went on the court. Um, and I guess it sort of a little bit of impact on me and on all of us was that um, my father, who loved to drive, had his route cut out for him because I was at Amherst. Uh, my brother Jonathan went to Cornell and Gordy was in Wallingford, Connecticut, and then my mother in Albany. So my father would kind of set out, maybe he would set out on a Sunday night or something and go do what he would call the circuit and he would hit all of us. And so that was kind of nice. You know, she she mentions, you know, the early part of her practice uh, where she met your father, Stephen, and and there's a common thread throughout this uh, book uh, just about how close the two of them were. Uh, She she used the phrase um, independent, uh, but also interdependent. which I think was, you know, uh, uh, very telling. Um, tell us a little bit about that relationship. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really a pretty good way to describe them. I think that they they had so many common interests. You know, the law pretty much was, was the main one. You know, they could just talk about the law constantly. Um, when they went on vacation, my mother only had... Um, vacation in July because that's when the court was off and they would um, rent the same chalet in this little tiny town in the Alps in Switzerland and they would bring the entire U.S. Law Week with them um, and just you know read every single one every single decision that came down from the court from the Supreme Court on their vacation and then also on their vacation when they would take day trips they would always go see courts in in towns and cities so that was a huge common interest and then they loved the opera um, they had two subscriptions to the opera so they would go twice a week um, and they both loved to read. Um, It's kind of, I mean, they were also very independent people. Um, My father loved to gamble, and he especially loved um, horse racing, and my mother hated it. Um, So, you know, she would never go with him, and she would never let him tell us, the, the three children, about times that he won at the track or in a casino because she didn't want us to think it was you know, you could actually be successful at gambling. Um, and then, you know, my mother also had her private interests. Um, she loved to shop. I think people know that about her. Um, and of course she loved a good bargain. She did love to shop and she did talk about that a lot. And, you know, there was, uh, an occasion at the New York state bar association where, 
your mother received the Bar Association's gold medal uh, at the president's dinner. And just prior to receiving the medal, you know how the Bar Association has all these ribbons mm-hmm. for, you know, committee chair and president and section leader and vendor and all this stuff. She took these ribbons, probably, I don't know, 15 of them, and um, went into the ladies' room and made a giant wreath to put around her neck out of all these multicolored ribbons so that when she (laughs) were to accept this very serious award she had this you know this whole ribbon that she sewed together Um, and so she talked about it was you know it was very entertaining and she said there was one that's missing uh that i that is most important to me and it's it's it should be called shopper (laughs) yeah 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 but i mean she wasn't a the kind like like a uh you know kind of gross shopper like going and buying thousands and thousands of dollars worth of stuff she loved to just like be in a I think it 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 sort of harkened back to her her upbringing where she worked in her parents store she says and always always said it to us and she says it in the book from the time she could reach the counter um so her, like, I think her most favorite store was a, a store called Lodges in Albany, which she said reminded her a lot of her parents' store where they just had absolutely everything you could think of, you know, from clothing to candy and, you know, keychains and stuff like that. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about her upbringing, because it is uh, obviously, you know, uh, she was she was brought up in in uh, upstate New York. Um, uh, fairly humble, I'm going to say, background. Tell us a little bit about how you think the her upbringing, you know, shaped her as a woman and also as uh, as a judge. As, I'm sorry, I lost uh, how her upbringing faced her, her upbringing as a as a her. you know the the woman leader that she is, and yeah. and also uh, as the judge that she was. Um, I think that it shaped her in that she she didn't ever forget like where she came from even though um she went on to be you know a very successful professional and sort of the mo- like she was at Sullivan Cromwell she was at at Owen Connolly you know in very you know i would say high end fancy firms and living in New York City and living in, you know, very nice circumstances. Um, She never forgot and never really changed from the person she started out being. And um, she was very humane and very empathic and, um, you know, just very in touch with people from all walks of life um and so i think that shaped her and she as as, as a lawyer sorry yeah no go ahead you know as a lawyer and a judge i i think she took that with her as well um she was always most concerned about the people that um were hardest off and you know and sort of put down by society. And you talk in the book about how she used her opportunity um, as chief judge uh, to uh, 
kind of portray some of that empathy that she had. She formed a lot of specialty courts. Mm -hmm. uh, she mm -hmm. had a particular em emphasis on, on children uh, and making sure that they were properly treated in New York State in our court system and had some innovative courts uh, for, uh, for children. Uh, uh, obviously, talk a little bit about yes. that and the work she did in that regard because it was so important to her. Yeah, I mean, I think that she just came to view the the system, um, for lack of a better word, um, which sort of focused on the it, you know the end, uh, you know, where are we now, and and punishing. Um, as not really optimally effective. Um, I think one thing that struck her a lot also going back to children was, you know, when she started visiting the family courts and seeing all the children just sitting around day after day, um, you know, languishing in the waiting areas while their parents had to do their business in court, um, uh, you know, that was really problematic for her. And so I think it would just, the person that she was was she was always trying to find a solution to things, and so um, the idea of these problem-solving courts was like rather than just sort of throwing people away and you know having them waste in prisons or whatever, um, she wanted to find a way to help them, and as a result, also help society. Yes. You know, one of the things that was interesting in the book was that she had, a, you know, some opportunities to actually move on from New York State and move on to uh, what might be considered a higher level positions uh, that I'd, I'd like to talk about a little bit. And, and she was she really felt that her work was best served uh, here in New York. So in 1993, when she was under consideration uh, to be uh, chief judge, which she was eventually appointed to. Um, at that time, she was uh, contacted by then-president-elect uh, Bill Clinton to go and uh, uh, see if she might be the U.S. Attorney General, and she actually went to Little Rock and and uh, spoke to him before uh, pulling her name out of contention. But tell us a little bit about uh, you know what that experience was was like for her. Yeah. I mean, again, I didn't know that much about that while it was going on, but I certainly heard her and my father talk about it afterwards. And, and I did know a little bit about uh, consideration for attorney general while it was going on. And I think, you know, first of all, she loved being a judge. And I don't think that it, it really appealed to her to be uh you know, a, a sort of administrator um, and in the role of a, a politician, actually, right. um, in the role of attorney general. Um, and I think, you know, when Waco happened, she breathed a big sigh of relief about not having taken that job. So I, I don't I don't really think that she wanted to move out of judging. And then I think she just felt a very, very deep attachment to the New York Court of Appeals and didn't want to leave there. Right. And, 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 you know, you talk about how much she loved being a judge, but then later, uh, after uh, Bill Clinton became president, there was an open seat on the U.S. Supreme Court. And again, uh, he reached out 
to her to consider her for the Supreme Court spot. This was after now. She's already chief judge. And again, yeah. she made the determination that she'd rather, um, she was better served here in, in New York. Yeah. Um, again, I think, you know, she did feel a deep, deep attachment to the court um, in, in New York and to her colleagues there. And I think that after the um, the upset the court had been through leading up to her appointment as chief, she felt that that would, would not be good for the court for her to leave right after she had been appointed. And I think that she was very happy with her decision. Yes. Well, it always seemed like she was happy. I know uh, from talking to her how much she loved uh, being on the court, how much she loved the camaraderie of that court. Um, and uh, she really, it meant, uh, I think, the world to her. Um, just her colleagues, uh, the high regard that she had for all of her colleagues uh, on that court. I would say, I would even go beyond that. I mean, she high regard, and I think that she loved every single one of them. You know, whether they were ideologically in sync or not, I think that she really loved them. Yeah, I, I, I think that, that I think that was shown, and I think that love was uh, returned. Uh, you know, the, there was a real, uh, you know, collegiality uh, and uh, kind of a family feel uh, on the court when she was uh, she was the chief. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the the picture that you have on the cover of this mm -hmm. book. Um, she's wearing her. I'm going to say trademark red shoes that be she became known for. She liked uh, uh, the red shoes. Uh, tell me a little bit about this picture and and uh, what it was, how that picture came to be. So this picture um, was taken by Annie Leibovitz, and it was for um, an issue of Vanity Fair magazine, I think, it must have been, well, it's post-93 because she's sitting in the chief chair. Yep. And I don't think they would have sat her there just for the picture. I, I just don't remember exactly what year it was. Um, and it was, um, they, they did a feature on powerful women. And she was actually the centerfold with this picture. Um, she initially was a little reticent about the, because it's, you know, it's a pretty risque picture. Um, it looks like she's owning it, though, certainly. But I have to take her, encouraging her. Yeah, she's, she owned everything. Come on. <laughs> um, I was the one who said it has to be this picture. I love this picture. Because if you look at, if you look at more than just her in the picture, just look at the background. Those are all men in the portraits. So in the court of, as, as I'm sure you know, and probably yep. most of your listeners know, um, the associate judges' portraits are hung. They're, they're the smaller ones, and they, they'll be hung when, um, when the judge retires um, from the bench. And the, the larger ones are the chiefs, and they're all men. And there she is just giving this kind of like smirk, like, like exactly what you said. I own it. I got it. I'm here. Um, and, and I just loved it. And she has great legs, and so I just I thought it was a fantastic picture. Well, it is it is a great picture, and I think it shows, you know, I think the the woman and the person 
and the judge that she was. It, it's uh, always amazing when you can have a picture that really encaps encapsulates everything. So I think it was a great choice. I think the book is certainly okay. worth purchasing just for the picture alone. Uh, <laughs> let's... Uh, let's talk about, so this is your co-editor. You have four editors, all of whom were very close to Judith Kay. Uh, yeah. Just tell us just a little bit about the other editors and what their role was uh, in the book, because this book is more than just a memoir. There's uh, a, a compendium of her best cases or most important cases, uh, a compendium of some of her most significant articles. Uh, so in addition to the you know, the personal aspect of her memoirs, it's also uh, quite a, uh, you know, hefty legal treatise as well. So tell us a little bit about uh, the other editors and, and what their involvement was. Okay, so, well, let's start with Al Rosenblatt, who was one of my mother's best friends and you know she just she just loved him and um he is you know the grand head of the new york courts historical society which is an amazing organization and he is the one who really like pushed this through along with marilyn marcus who's the executive director of the historical society they i, I mean they are really responsible for getting this done i don't know if I would have been able to do it without them. You know, Al found the publisher and um, just really prodded me when I was sort of being lackadaisical about it. Not because I didn't want to get it done, but because it's just like anybody who's ever done a book knows that it's it's a huge undertaking. Um, and so um, Al kind of, Al took over the uh, the judicial decisions portion and just steering the whole thing through the process and along with Marilyn. And um, then Hank was a clerk of my mother's many years ago. Um, and um, it, you know, was I, I say in, in my little note is sort of her, her unofficial son. She, she and Hank were very close. Um, I think my mother is the one who um, sort of Jewish mothered Hank, um, pushed him forward um, to become engaged to his then girlfriend, now wife of many years. You know, she said, come on, you gotta, you gotta go forward with this. And um, so Hank, um, was in charge of doing the articles section of the book. And I think, you know, everybody just did a really great job. I think so, too. It's a great book. Uh, I think there's uh, a lot of love in this book, both by the editors and by uh, Judith Kay. And it's a, it's a, a warm and personal uh, uh, display of of Judith Kay. So you did a great job. Uh, all, Thank all you. Four of you. Uh, Thank you. I want to, uh, we have a, a feature here on Miranda Warnings called music book or movie. Is there an artistic performance of some kind that you'd like to share? So I recently, so I moved to Colorado in January and um, there's a, a concert venue um, near Denver called Red Rocks. And recently there was um, an ABBA tribute band that came to Red Rocks. So 
I don't know if you know this from talking with my mother, but my parents loved the play Mamma Mia. Um, I don't know if it's still on Broadway, but they, they must have taken my kids to see it at least 20 times. And my father had the CD in his car, and that would be often playing whenever we were in his car. And so when I saw that they were coming to Red Rocks, I, I rallied all my kids to come to Denver and go to the concert. Um, but on the morning of the concert, it like it started snowing and this was just last month. It was just in May. Um, so uh, we, we were deciding, should we go? Should we not go? This is an outdoor amphitheater. And we were like, yes, we have to go. So we went and it was really a magical experience to hear all of the song we had heard. And so many, and I'm sort of, you know, I'm tearing up a little bit. We, you know, it was just magical to hear those songs. And especially with the weather, it was like snowing on the stage. They never, they never cancel a concert for weather at Red Rocks. Um, so that was really special. Well, that's really, thank you for sharing that with us. And uh, obviously brought back many great memories that you, mm-hmm. that you had yeah. of your, your family. Uh, and uh, I think it's really just, you know, she, she mentions in the book, in her memoirs, you know, the great love of her, she has for her family, obviously her husband and her children and her grandchildren and how important all that was uh, to her. And you know that it was. So, Louisa Kay, thank you very much for being with us on Miranda Warnings and sharing this really wonderful story about your mother, Judith Kay. Thank you so much, David. Thanks for listening to Miranda Warnings. I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to Miranda Warnings, a NISBA podcast available on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.